On this episode, I'm speaking with Bobby Stewart, founder and CEO at Revise. One part tech nerd, one part storyteller, Bobby has led both technical and marketing teams as the head of marketing at BH and VP of digital strategy and director of product at G5. Her previous experience heading up B2C and B2B performance marketing at Realtor.com, coupled with over a dozen professional certifications from organizations like OMCP and Pragmatic Institute, give her the unique perspective needed to move the needle in the industry today. Bobby says her favorite thing about her work is that it's the perfect mashup of science and heart. So great conversation with Bobby, digging into her background, her history in the multifamily industry, and now her new startup at Revise. Let's jump into the conversation. All right, Bobby, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thanks, Chris. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, and I, I'm really excited to, to connect with you. There's There's been a lot going on in your world over the last few years, and I'm excited to get to the place where we can kind of dive into all that. Um, I would love to really just jump in though and, and hear a little bit about your upbringing and experience in the Pacific Northwest as a youngster. Um, I always love to dig into the, the history behind the person and behind the stories. So let's start there. What were those early years like for you? Yeah, growing up, I grew up in Oregon um, and really spent the entire some of my childhood in the Pacific Northwest. So grew up in Central Oregon. Uh, with a family who was always surrounded by music. Those are some of my earliest memories. My dad is a drummer. Um, I, I always say like he's a drummer by trade and then his day job pays the bills. <laughs> but growing up, we had our, our house was full of music equipment, speakers, amplifiers, drum kits. Um, and my parents both actually worked at the local lumber mill. So we were very, very working class. Um, my mom took night shift so that my dad could play music in the evenings and always just surrounded by people and music um, and mm. really enjoyed that. So, yeah, that's that's really it makes me think of um, actually. So I have a right now I have a two and a half year old son and um Locally, we had a little concert, a little summer concert series that happened recently. And um, we rode his little bike down there and, and like it was the first time that he was ever able to see live music, right? Like as a band performing in front of an audience. And um, I took a few videos of it. And in the moment, he was very just a little, I think, shell shocked and yeah. like looking on at everything and wanted to see the guitars and the drums and I have a, a little bit of a musical background myself. And so we were pointing out the drum kit and the bass guitar and stuff like that. And um, he loved it. And I have to imagine your experience was really similar as a kid, just kind of like wide eyed and, and really enjoying being around that kind of a environment. Definitely. And, you know, it's I, I didn't know any different. So to me, that was just life. But um, my dad, there were a couple of times where he would take us to his sound checks and we could, he'd let us sing in the microphone and he'd record it ahead of time. So he mm. has a couple recordings of me and my sister singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when I was oh, like cute. three years old. Um, and vividly remember one time my younger brother, when he was two, he would crawl into the bass drum and my dad's kit and just nap inside the bass drum. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> were there awesome. any were there any pillows or anything in that drum yep, kit? Totally okay. like this huge 70s pillow, brown, orange, and yellow to muffle the sound. So it was yep. super cozy. Cool. 
um, that's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have to ask because I'm I'm a big music nerd. Um, love a few different genres, but did your parents have any specific genre that they like introduced you to as a young kid that you still listen to today? So yes. For sure. My dad was always into classic rock and that's kind of my first love. Um, interestingly enough, my, so I have an eclectic taste in music. I love everything, but there's one song that is absolutely my favorite song ever. It's Heart of Gold by Neil Young. And that's, okay. that's kind of my like throwback to dad's classic rock. Neil Young is actually playing in Bend um, two weeks after my birthday this summer. So I get to go and see it, which is going to be amazing. amazing. That's great. Um, but so my mom on Saturday mornings, she would always put George Michael's faith record on. Mm. And we, her and my sister and I would dance in the living room. And I like, that was such an impactful experience for me. So I've got that, that eighties rock twinge um, mixed with a little bit of the, the classic rock from my dad. But then cool. In my teenage years, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I couldn't help but be influenced by grunge rock. So there we go. Nirvana, Bush, Mazzy Star, those were like my core, um, my core. Oh man, I have to love. tell you this. So I have to tell you <laughs> that. So Pearl Jam is one of my my all time faves, and um, my son he now is requesting Pearl Jam. And he likes their song daughter. And so he always comes to me and says, Pearl Jam daughter. And I just, I absolutely, (laughs) I absolutely love it. So um, we're, we're raising our kids right on the right music. That is awesome. That's awesome. You know, what's funny though, is that my son four and a half, he just decided to buck the trend and he is a huge Taylor Swift fan. So now in my household, we listen to Taylor Swift, which is something I never thought I'd do, but she is actually a brilliant musician. So mm. my <laughs> wife, my, my wife is a Taylor Swift fan. So, um, I'm sure that we'll go across, across the genres over the years as well. So it's, it's awesome. great though. Yeah. Well, let me, let me pivot a little bit to, so as a kid, obviously you're around music, um, both like literally in the music, uh, with, with your family, listening to music, being brought up around it. Um, but, but did you have any opportunities to travel around outside of the Pacific Northwest? I'm always curious about influences when you're younger, um, obviously small towns or hometowns or cities is, you know, those are one thing, but did you get out much? Were you able to sort of like see the world, so to speak, uh, at a young age? Yeah, not really. Um, growing up in a working class family with parents who worked night shift, um, we didn't travel much at all. I, the first time I ever flew was in the early 90s. Um, I was 14, 13 or 14, and I flew to New York City for a choir trip with my choir. And that was my first real experience getting out and getting a taste of the world. And I remember thinking on that trip, and granted, like this is the early 90s, so they gave us a lot of freedom on that trip. I remember Mm -hmm. a few classmates came home with tattoos when we're like 14 years old, (laughs) but the travel bug really bit me at that point. And that was the time where I realized that the world was my oyster and there was no going back at that point. (laughs) And so you, um, I know this from previous conversations, but 
after high school, you went on to attend college in Southern California. You went to Australia. You can continued to travel and explore. What were, what were some of those trips or experiences like that started to just sort of collect in your, your travel hopper, so to speak? Yeah, it was, it was really the idea that I could, could go anywhere and see something new and allow that experience to become a part of who I was and to shape who I was. So really it was, you know, growing up in a small town, as soon as I could, I wanted to go as far and as fast as possible. So Southern California was my first stop. And then as soon as I heard about an exchange program in Australia, I think I was the first one to sign up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, spending time in Australia was wonderful. And it really opened up the idea that um, international travel was possible. And from there, um, a couple a couple of big ones that come to mind are a beach camping trip in Costa Rica. Um, mm. I landed in Fiji one time with lost baggage and spent the entire seven days in a hoodie and jeans, Oh wow! which I don't recommend. <laughs> not in Fiji. Um, not in Fiji. <laughs> and even then it was the idea of exploration. And so uh, on a couple different occasions, I actually sold everything I owned and lived in a van um, once traveling around the U.S., which was amazing. I think we hit 40 different states over the course of 10 or 11 months and then eventually found myself um, moved from northwest Montana to New Zealand, again, where I traveled around in a van and eventually met my now partner. (laughs) (laughs) Was that, was that before van life was cool? You sort of like were blazing a a trend before it was all on Instagram, I think. Oh, it was way before van life was cool. This was before (laughs) cell phones, Chris. I was living in a van with no cell phone and I actually still have it, but I had this giant atlas a road atlas oh yeah where you would flip through the pages and i had a yellow highlighter and i would highlight the routes we wanted to travel and i mean there were no phones there was no you don't ask siri for directions no yeah no it was wonderful i remember those times i i always appreciated my parents having the giant roadmap atlas books in the car and especially when we were on road trips, being able to sort of like flip the giant pages from state to state and see where you were headed. So I remember those days. Yeah. The nineties are, the nineties are very underrated, right? Because it was the last analog era and it was the last time of this, uh, lack of connectivity that we, we overemphasize these days to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing for me was you almost had more choice because you could, you could see your options and it, it wasn't always about faster, farther, harder. It was survival, right? You yeah. were just, you were just being. You were just being, that's a great way mm-hmm. to put it. Well, I want to hear about your early career years. Cause I, I know that, you know, some of the bigger stops you had later on, which we'll get to were are really impressive and interesting in their own right. But I'm curious, and I'm always curious about guests that come on is, is was real estate like this target that you had from the very beginning? Um, did you stumble your way into that world? Just sort of set the stage for us. Yeah. 
um, real estate was not. And I think part of that was because of the idea that um, growing up, uh, my parents eventually split and my dad lived in Washington. My mom stayed in Oregon. So um, for the first four years of elementary school, I changed schools every six months and moved back and forth and kind of built this identity around being a nomad a little bit. So never really having that concept of home or belonging. But as soon as I was old enough to buy my own house, I realized that I could create kind of my own sense of belonging and the place where I felt like home. And so I think that was when the tide turned for me. And I really started to value the idea of home as a concept and as something that could be transformative and um, mm. create that source of strength. So um, really, really quickly developed a huge passion for real estate and the idea of putting roots down in different places to, instead of just travel on a whim, actually start to build a future life where I had these connections. Mm. Um, from, from a career perspective, I was always a super hard worker. My mom really taught me the value of hard work and she retires next year, which I'm so excited for her. It's going to be a huge milestone. But growing up, my dad had a small business. And so every summer I would go and work for him from the age of like eight or nine. And then I got my first real job when I was 15 and um, was working in the records department at an insurance company where I was transferring paper files to digital using a microfish machine. Oh, and yeah. that's really, really going to date me. Um, <laughs> 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 a brief stint of that wonderful technology. Um, but I, so I was always a hard worker and always had a job from the age of eight or nine and worked doing a lot of different things, but always, always gearing and leaning toward the technical um, in the early 2000s, when digital marketing first started taking off, I felt like for the first time that was my calling. So mm. I dove headfirst into digital technologies. Um, I remember teaching myself how to build websites on Adobe Dreamweaver. And I think I was probably one of the first 50 people to sign up for Twitter when it launched. Yeah. Um, but really just felt like, okay, this is this, the perfect culmination of creativity and technicality. And I feel like it's new enough that I can jump on the front end of this and really make something of it. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. Were there any formidable moments during the, I'll say the early 2000s, um, where you thought to yourself, you know, like, this is it, like technology is where I want to be. Cause I'm, I'm right there with you. I was, you know, dabbling in Dreamweaver actually before Dreamweaver, I think it was Microsoft front page 
then it was Dreamweaver, and then these other platforms started to emerge, right? But I think I'm right there with you because that was a very exciting new frontier sort of wild west moment of internet technology. Yep. Looking back, was there a time or a couple times for you where you said, okay, this is fascinating. This is interesting. This is where I want to be, whether that's app specific or just sort of like of the time where you look back and you think, oh man, that was it. That's a great question. The first thing that pops to, to my mind is, um, it was, I think it was 2010, 2011, and I was running social media for a, a big conference that focused on human rights and social justice. And this um, hashtag for the conference made Twitter's top trending list. And at that time, that was like the pinnacle of social media. If everyone you, saw it. Yeah. If you, if you had enough momentum and if you could build your social media game to hit Twitter's top trending list, like you had it, you had made it right. And this was before they kind of softened the algorithm and made it achievable for everyone on a regional basis. But I remember at that moment thinking, wow, like, I'm just a kid who read some stuff online and figured out how to do this. And I'm pushing some buttons in the background and building this groundswell around a topic that really meant something to me and getting all of this exposure for human rights and social justice. And I, mm -hmm. I'm just me, like I'm nobody special. And it was at that moment that I think it hit me that you can really like the decisions that you make and the keys that you touch can really change the world when you work in digital marketing. It sounds crazy to say, yeah, um, no, it doesn't. but you can change hearts and minds. Like marketing yeah. is powerful. That's a great story. Yeah. I love that story. Well, let's, let's use that as a pivot point into G5, which was a, a major career point for you. You spent many years with with the team. I'm. It, it makes me wonder what drew you to that opportunity, be it sort of the real estate side, because you were starting to think more about that, um, or was it the technology side, which you had obviously taken a dive into head first? Was it something else? Was it a combination of all of those things, like in a big pot? What was the what was the pull? What was the pull? Yep. It was, it was the combination of both. And the funny thing is I actually learned about G5 through a Craigslist ad. So <laughs> shout out to Craigslist <laughs> in the early 2010s. But yeah, G5 was the combination of all of those things. And I remember throughout the interview process, meeting so many people just like myself and thinking, wow, this could be my tribe, right? Up until now, I had been self-taught kind of working in as a maverick, working in a silo, just doing what I could see was working. And the idea of joining a team where I could combine my efforts with, you know, this, a, a group of like-minded people to actually impact the way that people find a place to call home was really appealing to me. Mm -hmm. So it was the convergence of two things that I was incredibly passionate about at that time. And it was such an incredible opportunity. 
Yeah. You know, it occurred to me that some of our listeners and viewers might not know what G5 is. And so I want to ask you just at a high level, sort of, you know, G5's mission, what they were all about, especially when you joined, um, uh, kind of the, give me the, the G5 banner, just a quick story about what they're all about. Yeah, G5 is a predictive marketing technology company that serves primarily the multifamily industry, as well as senior living and self-storage. They have since been acquired by RealPage. They are doing amazing things. But their core offering was helping um, owners and operators reach prospects and residents through top of funnel marketing channels. So everything from websites to SEO to digital advertising and cost scoring. So really helping, helping renters find a place to call home. Mm. That, that makes me, that, that prompts me to ask you about your biggest takeaways from an experience like that, because you go from being a solo maverick to on this, you know, kind of big team at G5. And if you look back, what were your biggest takeaways from that? I don't know. I guess I'll call it like your big first multifamily kind of like corporate experience with that big family again, as opposed to I'm just this person in the back on Twitter, kind of like figuring it out. Right. Like, so I'm, I'm curious, what do you, what do you look back on from that time? So many things. The biggest takeaway was how impactful you can be when you have the right people on the bus. And there was a time at G5, I think I'd say between 2015 and 2017, where it was the the golden era of people on the bus. So many insanely talented humans were Mm. at G5 at that place and time. And if you look at that cohort, um, so many of those people have gone on to do amazing things and are really impacting the industry in a big way, whether it's through executive positions or starting new companies. There's a a huge cohort of G5ers who are changing the world, which is really cool. Um, Mm. The other thing I used to say all the time is that and I, I remember saying this to my team over and over, is I really learned how to appreciate the beauty of scale. Now, as a marketer, you kind of come in a couple of different flavors, right? There are marketers who are passionate about the details, and they tend to thrive in environments where um, you have more creative control, more agency type environments where you can really get down to the details and you can fret over the details. And then there are marketers that are okay with the idea of less control, but being able to influence a broader swath of acquisition or um, conversion outcomes. And so Mm. for, for me, it was being able to go from being that independent lone wolf maverick who could fuss over the details and really control every lever of a program to having to scale a $250 million advertising program across thousands of rooftops across the country Mm. and being able to appreciate the beauty of scale. I'm curious about the, you ended up as the VP of digital strategy at G5 and one of the things you told me was that 
and it was the question you asked yourself, which was, how do I look at the entire spectrum of digital marketing products and services? And I have to imagine like leading up to the point where you attained that role and position over the course of a few years, the idea of doing that when you first walked in the doors was probably would, would have been an overwhelming concept, right? Um, but as you just said, you got to a point where you're overseeing $250 million budget across all of these uh, different assets. How did you even manage to handle that as, um, again, the maverick coming in who is now in control of all of these decisions? Was that like an overwhelming moment for you or did you just sort of lean into it and were you able to rely on your team? Through and through, it was a team sport, right? It it takes a village, 100%. And I think one of the things that I learned about myself was that I, um, while I have held the title of marketer on many different occasions, I don't consider myself to be a marketer. I, I am a strategic thinker. I'm a business strategist with a marketer's toolkit. And that has always kind of been my motto is that I, I love looking at the bigger picture and I love seeing the story come together and helping to, to put people in the right spot and align the right tools to make an, an outsized impact. And so G5 really gave me that opportunity in the VP of digital strategy seat to coordinate and orchestrate the entire digital marketing journey across disciplines and functions, which was incredible. Mm. Um, there were there were so many times where I thought to myself, like, how am I someone who is not, um, you know, classically trained in these disciplines? How am I capable and able to be leading the charge? And there were some moments of, you know, imposter syndrome. And still today, even in everything that I do, that's always... Um, poking his head up from the back. But there, there were so many moments where I realized that I was just as capable as everyone around me. And it was really getting those opportunities to kind of go behind the curtain and mm -hmm. realize that I am no different from the people who are um, in the C-suite or making these industry changing decisions. And I think the moment for me where I really understood that deeply was when I moved into product management and began trying my hand at leading engineering teams to actually build the technology that underpinned um, the marketing systems that G5 produced. Mm. Let's talk about the transition that you had after you, you went away from maternity leave for, for, some, for obviously a little bit of time there. Um, you came back and you mentioned to me that you were, you got to a point where you're just ready for, for a change and, and you weren't necessarily sure exactly what that was at first, but talk to us a little bit about how that chapter started to come to a close. And then you had an opportunity to transition to what was, um, I don't know if it's was called this then, or it's still thought of this now, but sort of the hated ILS world, as you jokingly mentioned to me. But let's talk about that transition because I know that is never necessarily an easy, clear cut path either. Yeah, for sure. So being on the on the front end and 
leading the managed services and digital strategy world at G5 was incredible, but I was using the technology that the product and engineering teams had built. And I always had this desire to be able to influence and drive the development of the technology, right? I wasn't just satisfied using it and mastering it. I really wanted to build it myself. And so Dan Hoban gave me a great opportunity after I came back to G5 from maternity leave to move into product management. And he supported me going through um, training and certification from Pragmatic Institute to get my product manager certification. And um, then I got thrown into the deep end, working with both onshore and offshore engineering teams, having to learn um, how to write stories, do backlog growing, um, how Scrum worked, right? It was, it was going into this completely foreign world mm. and really having to run pretty quickly to catch up and, and try to make magic happen. And there were so many times where um, I, you know, I felt like, oh my gosh, can I actually do this? But realizing by getting thrown into the deep end that I was, that nobody, I was just the same as everyone else. Um, other than being the only female sitting at a conference table of 20 guys around the room most of the time, I was just like everyone else. <laughs> yeah. um, and once I had that taste of what it was like to influence the technology and to actually be able to build something new and something that could transform the industry, I that was what I wanted. And it, at that point, it really solidified for me that I, I'm a product guy now masquerading as a marketer. <laughs> so <laughs> I had an opportunity in early 2020 to join Realtor.com right at a really transformative time for them. They had just acquired OpCity, which was a tech startup based out of Austin, Texas. And OpCity had this really cool piece of technology where they would, um, through machine learning um, and data, they'd be able to triage and match um, prospective buyers, sellers, and renters with real estate agents in real time that was completely transforming realtors' business model from top to mm. bottom. And so I had the opportunity to join right as the two companies were merging together and to help drive um, the transition of that technology into the foundation of realtor.com. And it is, like you said, um, it's the going to the ILS world is like joining the dark side. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's just because of this reputation that ILSs have, especially in the multifamily industry as this necessary evil. But for me, it was, it was eye-opening to see how the ILSs have a deep understanding of the consumer. They understand the renter. They understand the prospect in a way that I believe no one else in the industry does. As much as vendors, 
vendors of all sorts, whether you are marketing or self-guided touring or a CRM, as much as vendors would like to think that they understand the renter and their needs and operators, right? As uh, people who provide housing, we are creating these homes for our residents. Um, I, I think that of, out of all of us, it's the ILSs who truly understand the renter's journey better than anyone else. Mm. And that was eye-opening for me from both a technical perspective and the way that the ILSs track consumer data across the journey, all the way through to understanding renter behavior. The ILSs are treasure troves of information. And I'm one of their, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of what they're doing. So. And that was a, that was obviously a big shift moving from tech to the focus on the renter. And I remember you mentioning that as you were concluding your time with G5, you were sort of um, understanding this game of, of telephone that happens between the, the technology builder and the technology buyer. And now as you are into the ILS world, you're seeing the probably the some of the breakdowns between what you knew at G5, what you now know at Realtor. And then moving forward, you ended up landing at BH, which is why we always talk about this, you know, this trifecta of experience that you've had now in all corners of this multifamily triangle. But you basically went from tech to consumer to now an operator. And you mentioned to me that despite being in the industry for about seven years at that point, you really felt like that transition was difficult. Why was that? It was, it was, it was shocking, I would say. And it was because I went from being the person who was building the software and selling the software to being the person who's buying the software. And I quickly realized firsthand how fractured and fragmented our data is in the multifamily industry, especially when it comes to prospects and residents. And mm. I mean, I'll be the first to say that BH is an incredibly sophisticated organization and they've built a ton of in-house tech in order to try to make up for these shortcomings between systems and technologies, because it, today it really does take a village to bridge the data gap in this industry. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it was, it was this realization that we are all playing kind of a game of telephone, right? The ILSs are great at capturing renters and matching them up with prospective residents. Um, vendors are really good at catching those prospects and shuffling them through the pipeline. And then the operators are catching these prospects and residents on the other side and providing housing, which is one of the most complex and worthy of respect um, industries. And the work that operators do is right. so detailed and so unmatched. But we are all in this game of telephone where we're working we're all working toward the same thing. We are trying to get to the same outcome, but we are having a really hard time making that transition 
especially when it comes to data. And data is how we're going to be able to actually deliver a better prospect and resident experience. Had you ever been around in a, a, an environment that had relied on data in that way prior to BH? Or is that one of the key factors that made it so sort of shocking or shell shocking in a way where you realize I actually have to do something now with this, with this data? You know, at BH, it was, it was the, the weight of that action, right? It's, you know, being in e-commerce before it's the data on the buyer's journey, it either results in a $25 sale or it doesn't. And the $25 sale is not life-changing, but my first time being on the side of the operator, you see how impactful someone's choice of housing and where they call home is on the full spectrum of their life. And being on the vendor side for so long, for seven plus years, I had never really connected those things. Like we'd always talked about them. We'd always been aware of the fact that we are building technology that helps owners and operators provide housing. But I don't think you really understand it until you are in the thick of it, that Mm -hmm. you're dealing with people and their homes. And you have residents who are experiencing highs and lows, loss and grief and mental health challenges and financial challenges, especially the two years through COVID, right? Every single day as an operator, you are faced with the reality that life is not predictable and it's not easy. And being the steward of people's homes, you see them at their best and at their worst. And you really have to develop a thick skin very quickly. One of the things that you mentioned to me um, was the specifically the executive team um, with the BH crew and how there were so many tasks, so many responsibilities, and you all really had to rely on one another to sort of get things done in a way that you had never experienced before. What were some of those things? Because I think it really springboards into this new phase that you're in now, which I which I can't wait to get to. Yeah. It that was one of the biggest eye-opening things for me. Having been in the leadership team at tech companies, I realized how what we were providing was pretty narrow, right? At realtor.com, it's you're connecting renters, buyers, and sellers to agents and operators. At G5, it's you're building marketing technology for the industry. But at BH, the spectrum of tasks that the executive team had to tackle was so broad and so deep and no one else sitting at that executive table crossed over with what you were doing. You were 100% reliant on the head of that department to know what they were doing and to be making the best decisions for the company. So everything from maintenance to fair housing and regulatory compliance to construction and architecture, revenue management, equities, marketing, HR, um, hiring 3,000 employees across 350 distributed locations. It's just 
everyone has to own their world and you cover so much ground. And the amount of trust that the team had with each other was unlike anything I had ever experienced before. It's such a healthy, beautiful environment. And really, I owed so much to Joanna Zabriskie, the CEO and my boss. She is an incredible human being and has built such a stellar company over at BH. With all of that context in mind from G5 to Realtor to BH, I want to make sure that we shine a bright light on your newest venture, Revise. So I know that you can explain it better than anyone else, and I definitely want you to do that. Um, but it's really your first exposure as your own startup, combining all of these different pieces of that trifecta into your own company. Um, it solves a very specific problem for the multifamily industry. And I want you to uh, do your best to explain that to the listeners and the viewers. Um, give us the pitch. Give us the big idea for the platform. Yeah. it. So it it arose from a period of transition that I went through after I had been at BH for about two years. And we had accomplished, my team had accomplished so much in that time period. It was an incredible experience of huge transformation. And taking a step back, when I learned that we were expecting my daughter, who was born this February, it was it was one of those moments where you kind of stop and take stock. And I couldn't help but think about who I wanted to be as a role model for her in and, and it hit me in a way that was a little bit different. Um, when my son was born almost five years ago, you know, my first introduction into parenthood, it was, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how to survive and how to keep him alive and how to be a good parent. Yeah. And then when we learned we were expecting my daughter, it was like, oh, wow, I'm going to be her role model. And I, I really want to start thinking about who, who who do I want her to see me as? And what are the boundaries that I want her to think that the world has? And so I really started thinking about um, what is next for me and what is it that I'm passionate about? How can I take the culmination of the last 10 years of experience in the multifamily industry and turn it into something influential, something where I can give back and help the industry innovate and come together. So thinking back on what I had learned after being on all sides of the multifamily trifecta, I, I really leaned into the fact that tech buying was hard and being able to connect the data from the moment that uh, a renter is interested, is is looking for a home all the way through to move in day and move out. How do we make that data transfer easier? How do we build tech stacks in a way where we can actually deliver a better renter experience and make it easier for renters to find a place to call home? Mm. And thinking back on what I had experienced at BH, um, you know, it was so apparent that 
are as an owner and operator making a decision about the vendors that I'm choosing to partner with really matters. And that's at the core of how we can start to change and start to start to, to deliver a better experience. And so thinking about when, when I was shopping for new solutions um, at BH, there was a moment where the team was looking for a core component of our portfolio marketing stack. And we had gone out for RFP and we submitted so many contact forms on vendor websites that were never answered. We never got a response. Mm. And we spoke to dozens of sales reps who couldn't answer our technical questions. And we, we logged all of this data. There was a, a core team of five folks who were working on this project. And when we got through the project, we looked back and we realized it had taken us an average of three and a half meetings before we could get to a technical resource who could actually talk through data integrations in an intelligent way. Mm. And we went through that process with more than a dozen vendors before narrowing our decision down. And it was over six months that taxed our team for so long. And just thinking there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so it was really that shared experience and desire to improve this process that resulted in the the foundational idea for revise so yeah i i have to this is a question i have to ask all entrepreneurs and as a quick tangent i think the listeners will appreciate this this is a curveball, Bobby. So here it comes. Yes. Bring it on. <laughs> uh, I love to know the story of the name. So where did Revise come from? And did you go through like a hundred iterations of what you're going to call this thing? And and where did you, obviously you landed on Revise and, and why did you land there? You know, it's funny, Chris. I, like I said, I am a product guy masquerading as a marketer. So Revise was the very first name that I came up with and I just ran with it. <laughs> No way. Really? Yeah, it was. Um, it's funny. It's it. So revise initially was just a mashup of real estate and advisor because okay. that was the core tenant was we want to be able, we want to make finding, buying and managing prop tech easier. And a couple of months ago, I was, doing something. I was using chat GPT and I was just messing around and I actually typed in and said, um, you know, Hey chat, what do you think if I started a, a software company called revise? Um, and the response was, Oh, that's a great name because it's a combination of reviews and analyze. And I was like, mind blown, wow. <laughs> um, which uh, now today, so Revise, we just launched our flagship product, Revise Discovery, which is a prop tech discovery and review platform that helps multifamily owners, operators, developers, asset managers find new products, compare reviews, um, analyze features and benefits, and connect with vendors. So, I mean, ChatGPT knew better than I did. That, right. Yeah. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, we, um, we're, we, our team at Authentic is um, excited to be a part of the platform. You launched it during NAA 
um, this summer. And from, from everything I've seen, it was very well received. The industry was, is, has been ready and waiting for a platform like this. I know I've heard about, uh, rumblings of something like this, you know, has been needed for the last at least five years or so. Um, what was the reception like within the, uh, within the industry so far? It was overwhelmingly positive. There was so much support from all sides of the industry. And it's still, I don't know why, but it still surprised me, right? Even having been through it firsthand on both the vendor side and the operator side, I was so passionate that this was something that could help the industry. Mm. But hearing everyone, seeing the overwhelming support has been incredible. And we've had, I mean, the numbers prove it, right? In the first seven days, we had more than 20% of all product listings claimed and more than 10,000 views. So it's it's gotten a lot of eyeballs, which is amazing. Um, and like at the core, our mission is to really start to try to bridge that gap between vendors and clients and make it easier to discover and buy software. Um, so it's been, it's been amazing. But at the same time, again, I'll say like, I, I, I wasn't surprised because we have, we've had so much data to back up the need. Um, early on, we did a, a survey with dozens of multifamily software buyers and decision makers. And a hundred percent of respondents said that reading authentic industry specific user reviews would have an impact on their vendor selection process. And mm. so the industry told us like, yes, please, we want this. So. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Like I said, it, it's been something I've heard from operators and other vendors for a very long time. I mean, you, you always hear these horror stories of, of groups that end up working with partners that are, it's a really bad fit for one reason or another, but ultimately it usually has, uh, at least in some part comes down to, miseducation, misunderstanding, and sort of this lack of, of, of early alignment that is, is really hard to find if you're just sort of basing it on a referral or, or, you know, this person sent you here and we're going to hope this works out because usually it doesn't work out that way. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what is, what's next for the platform? What's, you know, we have um, a piece of it live now and without risking you giving away too many secrets. What's on the roadmap for Revise? What should we be looking out for over the next uh, couple of years? Yeah. So right now with the discovery platform, um, it, again, staying true to our ethos of making it easier to shop, every product can have a free listing because at the, at the end of the day, we want to make this resource easy for multifamily decision makers to understand their options and to shop those options. Um, but where we're going right now with the discovery platform is we're really trying to lean into um, self-guided shopping experiences. So again, in our survey of multifamily buyers and decision makers, um, the data showed that transparent pricing, direct calendar scheduling links, and self-guided demos are the most influential components of today's B2B buyers shopping journey. Um, and so uh, in our survey, 100% of respondents said they wanted to see transparent pricing before reaching out to a sales rep. 
And 100% of respondents said they'd prefer a direct calendar scheduling link like Calendly. Mm -hmm. And 92% said they wanted to do a self-guided product demo before they'd be ready to reach out to a sales rep. So um, after collecting that data, we actually, we turned the tables and we wanted to see, okay, if this is what multifamily owners and operators want, um, what are we giving them today? So we measured this against the way that prop tech vendors sell their products and services today by auditing over a hundred multifamily vendor websites. And we found that less than 12% published their product pricing. 10% had a direct calendar scheduling link and less than 3% had self-guided demos, all of which were gated behind a contact form. So this led us to the question of why, like why is there such a huge disconnect between the way that B2B buyers want to buy a product and the way that B2B marketers and sellers want to sell their product. Mm. And it's mind blowing today that there is still such a huge gap. And so we're working, um, we have product listings available today where if a multifamily vendor wants to take advantage of self-guided shopping, we actually supply them with the software to create self-guided product demos that can be embedded on their listing. We've partnered with this incredible company called Storylane, who is a best-in-class self-guided demo provider. So we're bringing that horizontal technology to multifamily to be able to close the gap between the way that people want to buy and the way that vendors sell. Um, I'd say like one of the call outs though, is that vendors are afraid of giving away their secret right. sauce. And there's this right. resistance to be too transparent because they don't want their competitors to see their pricing. They don't want their competitors to see their product. And so one of the ways that we've solved for that with the revised platform is that all of that sensitive information is gated and it's only visible to approved verified buyers. So if I'm a multifamily developer, operator, asset manager, I can sign up for, for a free account and get approved as a buyer. And I'll have access to view all of that sensitive content, like case studies, pricing, videos, demos. But as a vendor, all of that is gated. So I can't go and sneak a peek at what my competitors are doing. Mm. Yeah, I think I was just going to ask that. But I think that, you know, you mentioned that B2B technology shopping has really changed in the last few years. And I think that's actually one of the key components to the to the breakdown between buyers and providers or vendors. And that is to say, you know, company X probably doesn't want to show everything off to all of their competitors and vice versa. And so how do you both provide that access and the opportunity to, for buyers to get that information, but not necessarily shortchange the vendor at the same time. And it sounds like you're doing a, a really great job doing that. And I think that really feeds into you mentioning on multiple occasions now that really revise is in place to help level that playing field across the industry. 
Um, could you speak to that as we start to wrap up? I'm curious if you can give an example or two of level leveling the playing field, quote unquote, what does that mean to, to you and to revise? Yeah, for leveling the playing field, you know, it's being an operator myself for a couple of years, I saw firsthand how arduous the vendor discovery and selection process is. And it's not easy to vet new solutions, let alone to even understand the world of options that exist. And thinking about how difficult and detailed the work of operating multifamily communities is, it's not surprising that a lot of a lot of decision makers just go with what they know, right? Because it's fast. It's, you know, it's the team that they've always worked with. And so they tend to go deep with a single provider instead of being able to go out and look at best in class solutions or to choose point solutions that are going to get them closer to delivering that ideal resident experience and really be able to look at their data across the full life cycle of prospect to resident. And so what revise what we aim to do is to be able to make that discovery process quick and seamless. And so how can we help take this vast ecosystem of prop tech and make it consumable and shoppable? And so the way that we've structured listings at the product level instead of at the vendor level is critical to that. And then we've categorized and bucketed solutions so that if I'm looking for a specific solution to tackle the problem of rent reporting, I can go to revise and I can look at all of my options. And then quickly at a glance, I can see pricing. I can see product integrations. I can see demos so that I'm, I'm cutting the pain out of that discovery process to help the industry buy better tech um, a lot easier and a lot more pain-free. Yeah, I was going to say, that, and I think we sort of joked about this um, a couple of weeks ago, but, you know, it's it's a lot easier to surf this product, understand my options rather than be sold on uh, or sold to over a, over a steak dinner during a conference event, you know, a couple times a year, which I know that's a, the bane of many, many's existence across the industry. I've heard many stories like that. Um, so I love that at the end of the day, it makes it easier. It's more seamless and the renter gets a better experience out of it at the very end, which is obviously the most important thing. Yep. I, I heard this really interesting data point and I wish I could remember the source, but there's data that shows that only 6% of conversations with a sales rep result in the prospect learning something they didn't already know. And so we have just been trained by, you know, the Amazons and the Ebays of the world to do our own research and to shop and expect to get on-demand information at any time of day. So um, it's it's really we're I don't okay controversial opinion, right. I <laughs> but I, 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 I know. But my hot take is that historically, B two B marketing and sales has positioned itself as 
this separate strategy and this separate practice, right? And there's almost been this rivalry between B2B and B2C. It's like you are either a B2B marketer or you're a B2C marketer. And you can't be both Mm -hmm. because they're totally different disciplines. And that is just not true. That is a a facade that the sales forces and the hub spots of the world would like us to believe. But those walls have been dissolved. And we are living in a B2C world. And B2B buyers expect their experiences to mirror that of B2C. They don't want to have to to request to download a white paper because it's been gated by a contact form. And um, it's, you know, the reality is that we are all living in a B2C world. So my apologies to B2B marketers, but got to get on this train. (laughs) No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that's a fantastic point. I mean, a lot of our marketing authentic now is less about trying to sell to another company, another operator or developer or whatever. And it's about talking about the problems that they can solve that makes the experience for the renter better. Because at the end of the day, it's about the consumer. It's not necessarily about them. And I think that's really flipped, you know, flipped the whole idea on its head over the last few years within the multifamily industry specifically. So I, I'm right there with you. Uh, Bobby, this has been amazing. I, I love chatting with you. I feel like we could wrap about marketing stuff for a long time. Um, I always like to wrap up with a couple quick rapid fire questions just to get your hot take and opinions that the listeners can walk away with. Um, being in the middle of it, in the epicenter of PropTech right now, to you, what is the most exciting shift you're seeing in this B2B PropTech world over the last 12 months or so? I mean, I have to say it's being able to close that arbitrary gap between B2B and B2C marketing and sales because people are people and we all want that frictionless Amazon-like experience now. Mm. Do you? Here's a curveball. Do you think that people want to buy from a company or do you think that people want to buy from a person? I would actually say people want to buy an alignment with their values more so than either of those. I think we've finally hit critical mass in the generation that cares about um, the meaning behind where their dollars go. And as you look at the data shifting where more millennials are in the buyer and the decision maker seat now than ever before, I think that um, people want to buy products where they align with the values of the company and they support the mission and the purpose. And then secondarily to that, it's it's for sure the people. But I think that um, you can't get by with mediocre tech anymore. Mm-hmm. That really the product has just as much of an influence on the, the purchase as the relationship does. Yeah. All right, let's pivot to one book that you would recommend right now. I always love this one. And it, and it's hard to do one. So it is. It's a really really hard question. Um I have been a devout reader of nonfiction my whole life, but I made a pact this year that with the stress of everything going on between new baby and new company that I would only read fiction this year. Um 
I'm already failing because there's a half read copy of spare on my sofa table right now. <laughs> um, but so the last fiction book that I read that was not bad was called Sea of Tranquility. And it's about kind of past and future time travel and the theory that we could all just be living in a simulation, which is so unlike me to get into sci-fi fiction. Um, but that's reflective of kind of the the decompression that I need when I sit down with a book these days. Yeah, this is this is where you are in life right now. Totally <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Bobby, it's been a pleasure to have you on. I, I want to make sure that we roll out the red carpet for you. Tell the world what you're up to, where they can find you online, where they could follow up and where they can learn more about Revise. Thank you, Chris. It's been awesome to be on. Um, find me at revise.com, R-E-V-Y-S-E.com on the Who We Are page, or I am also on LinkedIn, Bobby Stewart, would love to connect. All right, Bobby. It's been a pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.